Welcome to the last installment of the series, The Bible for Grownups. Um, today is a special day because it is a question and response day, not a question and answer day. Um, I, I heard this expression said um, because when it comes to the Bible, um, it's really hard to give a definitive or more importantly, a complete answer to a lot of really good questions. Um, so today you're going to get a response because um, a good handful of you sent in questions more questions than I have time to answer today. And I said, hey, let's reserve a Sunday to just talk through some of those questions. And so um, I've taken some of your questions, literally I've taken them um, and I've kind of modified them a little bit to maybe incorporate some things more broadly to hopefully not only answer your question, but other questions. And um, uh, I do want to preface though that this is, um, uh, we only have enough time to kind of Get your foot in the door today. That, that's really how I'm going to answer these questions. I'm going to give you a response that if you want to dig deeper, you can, and hopefully this gets you started, but it definitely isn't a complete answer. Um, and so if you leave today feeling like you have more questions or your question didn't get answered or addressed, um, please feel free to email me, set up a time, let's have coffee, um, and uh, talk through some of those things because sometimes that's a little better, or check out the resources that I'm going to give you at the end of today. Um, I'm also going to be referring to my notes a little bit more just so I don't misspeak um, and we, we kind of stay on track and hopefully I don't get too long-winded because when you, when you ask a pastor questions, like, we just love to answer and answer and answer. And so this is going to help me stay, stay on topic. Okay, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to cover a wide range of topics all intertwined or connected somehow to the Bible. All right, so um, we're going to jump, jump, jump right in today. Here is uh, the first question. How do you respond to people who use the Bible to support a personal or political agenda? To which I say, I didn't even know that happened. Okay, you processed that. Yeah, they, that took him a while in the room, but yes. Um, yeah, so how do you respond, which is a great question. Uh, it's very, very hard to do this um, because there's a lot of just emotion and backstory. And, um, uh, and honestly, we don't a lot of times realize that we operate sometimes more from a personal agenda or, um, you know, paralleling or trying to parallel a political agenda and reconcile those things. Uh, and so therefore it's really difficult to address that with someone else because in a lot of cases they or we don't even realize that that's what happens or what is happening. But one thing I do want to make you aware of, this is more of for you because you can't control them, but for you to change your heart and to put your heart and your mind in an accurate posture and appreciate what is happening, especially in today's world, which honestly has been happening for thousands of years among Christians, is that Christians have this nasty, terrible habit of disregarding and mistreating the people for whom Jesus died using God's words. Okay? I.e. the Bible. Okay? And so we would be well served to personally acknowledge that probably like you wouldn't, God doesn't like it when we leverage his words to hurt, harm, bring pain, and uh, devalue and shame other people. The people for whom he sent his son to die for. And so I think that just begins to bookend the further conversation on whether or not something's political or a personal agenda and actually in the Bible, because it's just not Christian 
to do that. Um, and so um, how should you respond and how do you engage people, especially over the holidays, if you're getting together with family and they bring in politics or whatever into that, you need to be the symbol or the rock or whatever you want to call it that points people towards Jesus. Because a lot of times when there's a personal agenda or a political agenda that's associated with it, the end goal isn't Jesus. The end goal is winning. The end goal is getting what people want. It's justifying their personal desires, leveraging the Bible to do it. But what Jesus did to tackle life's challenges and issues is Jesus called sin, sin, and then he died for it. He gave his life for it. And a lot of times, Christians are willing to do the first part, call a sin a sin, but not the second part, which is to die for the people who are sinning. So before you go in and you want to bring an agenda to the table or push buttons on in, over a family holiday or whatever, just do kind of like a little heart check and say, hey, am I willing to die for these people who may disagree with what I'm saying? And if the answer is no, then you probably need to focus more on following Jesus than you need to that agenda of yours, okay? That's a personal thing. And then as you get that squared away, I think you can start to worry about the plank in the other person's eye. So hopefully, hopefully that kind of helps. The next answer to the next question is gonna um, hopefully tease that out as, as well a little bit, okay? And this is a great question. Does it matter if people interpret the Bible differently? Because... And I know this is another shock to you all. We have a lot of different branches of Christianity, let's call them. Denominations, affiliations, whatever you want to bucket them as, right? You got Catholics, you got Baptists, you got Presbyterians, you got Lutherans, you got Lutheran Brotherhood, you got Missouri Synod Lutheran. I mean, you got, and you got all the flavors of, uh, sub-flavors within there. I mean, it's like a ice cream smorgasbord of different types of modifications. Some have mint in it, some doesn't have mint in it. Some has Oreo in it, some doesn't. You get where I'm going with this? I mean, it's just, yes. So it doesn't matter if people interpret the Bible differently because a lot of those different flavors justify their flavoring based on their interpretation of the Bible. To which I'm going to answer this question, doesn't matter if the people interpret the Bible correctly, with this question back to you and everybody in the room, which is, when you speak, do you care if other people hear what you want to have to say accurately? Do you care that people hear what you actually have to say? Of course you do, right? And so yes, ish, for the most part, it does actually matter how you read the Bible. For example, okay, this is a, a quick passage from 1 Corinthians, Paul speaking to the church in Corinth, and I, I just... There's so many implications. We could spend so long on this passage. It's just so great. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, I wrote you in my letter, another letter, different letter, a letter that we don't have, not to associate with sexually immoral people. That's what I wrote you. Okay, you got that letter, didn't you, Paul, Corinthians? Yes, Paul, we got that letter. Okay, not at all meaning. <laughs> Corinthians, you got it wrong. You took what I had to say literally We've talked about this in this series. You didn't contextualize what I had to say. I said, don't associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean, because then what the Corinthians did, they say, oh, I think you're sexually immoral. I'm not gonna associate with you anymore. And Paul's like, no, 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 that's not what I meant, Corinthians. The meaning of this, 
not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. If you avoided all of those people, you would have to leave this world. He's like, just, just take what I say and reason it out. Use your reasoning and logic. And if you did that, you'd realize you would literally have to leave this world to which everybody says, <laughs> you can't do that, to which we say, yeah, you can just get on a SpaceX, you know, and off the world you go and you'll be fine, right? But, in the, you know, this was such a dramatic statement. Yeah, he's saying, you interpreted what I had to say incorrectly. So therefore, he's going to contextualize it. Verse goes on. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, someone who's a Christian, but lives a sexually immoral or greedy or idolater or slanderous or drunkard, swindler lifestyle. Don't even eat with such people. He said, if you don't say, no, thank you, that's not what I'm going to associate, they'll never learn that this is a problem, that they need to live differently if they're claiming to be a brother and sister. He said, you can't do that around the people of this world. They live by a different standard. He said this all the time. And yet all these Christians are out there pointing their fingers, not inwardly at the church and at their Christian brothers and sisters. They're pointing it outwardly at the rest of the world saying, you all are terrible. And Paul's like, of course. Like, where do you, like don't be shocked by that. He's saying, you need to address the inward problems, the in problems within the church before you go pointing fingers on the outside of the church. But what was Paul's bigger issue? He was clarifying and contextualizing something that the other Christians, um, the Corinthians, didn't do. Here's what the Corinthians should have done and things that we should do. This is not a complete list, but just something to give you help helpful tips when you are trying to understand a verse or a passage or an interpretation of the Bible, okay? Because again, there's so many different interpretations. We're trying to get to the right one. We'll probably never get to the perfect one, but we're going to try. And here are some ways that you can do that. Number one, this is what you're going to say. I want to follow and know God through Jesus better. I don't know how to interpret it perfectly, but you know what I am going to do? I'm going to try to follow and know God through Christ better. That's what I'm going to try to do. And my interpretation may change over time, but I'm going to try to do this. Because this is what makes a Christian a Christian, is how they follow Jesus. Not perfectly interpreting, interpreting all of the Bible correctly. Number two, I didn't know that that, I didn't know that or I was wrong. Christians are not really good at this one. I didn't know that that was even in the Bible. I was wrong. My apologies. Help me to understand this better. If we just did those two alone, I bet we would have a lot less interpretation differences with other brothers and sisters in Christ. This is, should be flipped. I know how to number things, by the way. This should be three, but I flipped them. My bad. I copied and pasted and didn't correct it. Okay, number three slash four. I haven't intentionally read that passage before. In other words, I heard of that passage, but I didn't actually sit, meditate, pray, think through, read commentaries, and try to better understand that passage in its full context. But now that you, friend, have helped me to do that, I understand this differently. We don't do that. We don't ask other people's perspectives. We have our perspective, they have theirs, we go on with life. No, we could find unity and collaboration in, in understanding and interpreting the Bible. Number three slash four, be, comfort, 
be comfortable in tension. You could obviously see I did this last minute. Be comfortable in tension. We have this um, desire, especially as Americans, and I'm sure it's just a human desire because we want to bring order out of chaos. We're not comfortable with tension, so we want to resolve tensions. And a lot of times in relationships, that's okay, but there are times in relationships and in ideas and concepts that we need to hold the tension. We have to manage the tension. We've got to hold on to this idea, which kind of contradicts this idea, and hold them together. So we talk about this a lot. When Jesus, John said in John chapter 1, said Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. Not the balance between. He said he's 100% full of grace and he's 100% full of truth. Except those two ideas contradict each other. Because truth says you're sinning. Grace says I forgive you. You can't have 100% of both. Yet Jesus was 100% of both. How? How? There was a tension. Jesus called sin a sin, but then he died for it, for the forgiveness of sin, truth and grace. And we tend to not manage the tension. We tend to want to resolve the tension. And so a lot of us skew one way or the other. A lot of us skew in the truth direction. A lot of us skew in the grace direction. And we don't want to hold on to both. We want it to be black and white. And so often, especially in Western culture, we try to make Christianity black and white, and it isn't because it's relational, because it demands love. And love means there's going to be tension. There's going to be tension. If you read the Bible, which is the story of God, there is a lot of tension between God and humanity, yet God continues to manage it. Why? Grace and truth, ultimately, which are extensions of love. He's just trying to love people. He's trying to love us. Okay, be comfortable in the tension. Number five, my tradition does have a different view. Wow, we don't even say that very often. Not your view is wrong. It's just, hey, my tradition, the tradition that I come from, the denomination that I was raised in, whatever, we just have a different view, okay? I'm associated with a tradition that doesn't believe in drinking, to which... A mild Bible reader would say, yeah, but Jesus made wine out of water. How can you be against drinking? To which I say, my tradition tradition has a different view. Did Jesus make wine out of water? Absolutely. Did he probably partake in that wine? You got to think he would. I mean, it's probably heavenly wine, to say the least. You know, how are you going to pass that up, right? Everybody there was like, oh, you saved the best wine for later. Well, you had some heavenly wine right there. Um, that could be a great brand for some of you wine aficionados. Maybe there probably already is wine. Anyways, okay. Um, if, I, if you start that, though, I want commission. Okay, women, <clears throat> women in ministry is another example of this. There's different views, even among churches here in Johnson County. A lot of different views on this topic, okay? And their interpretation is different. But a lot of times, our tradition or our, uh, is based on just that. It is our tradition. It's the way we've always done it. But we're not willing to even acknowledge that, hey, this may not be biblical, but it is our tradition. And so I think it's really important for us to say, hey, you know, on this topic we differ, but the reason is, is our tradition, not necessarily because of what the Bible says. Hey, we read this, and we want to emphasize these things a little bit more than others, and here's why. And then we could all sit back and say, hey, I understand that that's where you're coming from given your tradition, but let's agree that that may not be a biblical mandate, that we may have a little bit of a differing opinion, but we're going to give each other grace. It's changing. It's difficult. 
I've said this before, pre-1990 Bible, more than likely there will be male words in there that are names, proper names, that were written as male even though they were female. Even though the early church, like the first Christians, they wrote about the Bible and wrote commentaries on the Bible, and they said, these are amazing women in the church. And then, a few hundred years after that, men came along and said, no, we're going to change them to men names. And then they were men names all the way up to until 1990. And then academics came along and said, no, they're definitely women names. And so they switched them to women. But why? Why did they make them men names? Because if you made them women names, you had to give women more credibility and credence within the church, but they didn't really want to do that. And that's the tradition, not the biblical mandate. And so we all have to humble ourselves and say, you know what, this is our tradition and it may change. And I may even be wrong. We're all learning. We're all growing. We're all trying to what? Follow Jesus better. But a lot of the times we're not willing to even make that statement. But I think if we want to go to the original question, which is, does it matter if they interpret the Bible differently? Yes, it matters. And therefore, we need to constantly pursue Jesus and following Jesus more accurately and updating our interpretations as we go along. Hope that was everything. Okay, how do you read the Bible? This is a very generic question. Love it. Couple of notes. Very simple, very high level. Just some things I wish some people would have told me before I got into Christianity or pre-Christianity, okay? First one is this. This is the Bible outline. Three sections. Problem, Genesis 1 through 3. Solutions, everything else, all the way up to the resolution, which is in Revelations 21 and 22. So you got three chapters at the start, two chapters at the end, and everything else is trying to resolve the problem at the beginning, and the final resolution is at the end. That's the Bible. And so a lot of people will say, hey, if you're going to start reading the Bible, then, you know, start in one of the Gospels. And that's okay, but whether you like it or not, if you lose Genesis 1 and 3, you got nothing. There's even no reason for the rest of the Bible. The rest, the, the majority of the Bible, 98 plus percent of it, 99 percent of it, is God and humanity pushing back and forth, trying to resolve the issues created in Genesis 1 through 3. And at the end, it's Revelation 21. Everybody's like, well, what's Revelation all about? And, I go, you know, there's all these chapters and all this. You can read 1 through 20. It's very interesting, very fascinating, okay? But really, 21 and 22 is the butter. It is the bread and butter. That's where it's at. That's how you should read the Bible. 1 through 3, learn things throughout the middle, and then celebrate the conclusion 21 and 22. That's like the basic outline. The other thing I wanted to say um, on this is, uh, and this kind of leads into... Uh, that as well is um, one, and I'm going to say this a little later, that the Bible is a unified, sto unified story that leads to Jesus. That's from the Bible Project. That's their mission statement. It's a great statement. Um, the Bible, from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to the end, points to Jesus. It's about God, but it points to Jesus. And you constantly see that throughout even the Old Testament, saying this guy's coming. Somebody is coming. This, this solution to the world's problems is coming. It's pointing towards Jesus. And even post-Jesus, all of those, Paul and Peter and James, they're all pointing back to Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. Anyways, um, and then the second thing was how to read the Bible is read it from the perspective of a loving father. And I realize that's hard because not all of us had that growing up, but I'm just telling you, when I started opening the Bible and reading the Bible from the perspective of a God 
a heavenly father trying to love his kids, gosh, it just made a lot more sense. And you start putting a lot of that in that framework and that analogy, it just, wow, it really comes together. So when people are struggling with Bible ideas and concepts and verses, and this is difficult, I just say, okay, now you put yourself in God's shoes and then put your kids in the person's shoes and, and how would that have played out? You know, put it in 21st century terms, how would that have played out? And how many times it just works out so well and you're like, oh, light bulb moment, that is how I would have handled my own kids. In fact, that's what I do with Genesis 1, 2, and 3 all the time is like, just look at it from God's perspective. Yeah, don't do this. Oh, don't climb the tree. Oh, my kids climbed the tree, I came out. Yeah, did I think that was gonna happen? Yeah, I probably knew that that was gonna happen. But now something is broken. Trust has been broken and we have to fix it, right? There has to be some punishment, right? There has to be some learning restoration because my child disobeyed what I asked them to do and they could suffer for it. They could fall out of the tree and break their arm and I don't want that because I'm a loving heavenly father. Okay, hopefully that's helpful. How did the Bible come to be? <laughs> like, I'm supposed to answer all these questions on a Sunday. How did the Bible come to be? Well, it's a long process. Um, One of the acronyms uh, that is used in how the Bible came to be is WDK. We don't know. Okay. Um, Not I don't know, because I don't want to take responsibility, but we don't know. We know a lot, especially the New Testament. We know a lot. Why? Because it was more modern. It was written a lot more modern form. We know a lot. But a lot of the Old Testament, we're not fully sure. There's great theories and hypotheses out there from great, profound academics, Christian and Jewish alike. And it is great stuff. Very interesting to read. But eventually, you're going to have to come to the point of faith and trusting that this is a story about a God who has been interacting with humanity for years and years and years and years and years. And sooner or later, you're going to have to come to that faith because you're never going to have it all figured out. Because friends, it's literally millennia old. We don't, they did not have the same standards of historicity and fact-checking and all the stuff that we try to do today. And let's be honest, we try to fact-check a lot, yet we still don't get it right. Fair? So it's not a perfect process. Here's what I would say that you do need to take away from how the Bible came to be. This is 100% true. God worked in, through, and around people. And those people recorded those events that God did and God did through them so that later generations, younger generations like you and like me could know God. I'll say it one more time. God worked in, through, and around people. And those people were like, oh my gosh, this is God. God's acting. And so they wrote it down so that they shared those stories so that younger generations like you and me could know God. And younger generations over thousands of years heard those very same stories and said, these stories, these letters, these documents are fantastic. And they consistently tell us about God. And so we're going to put them together and let's try to preserve them and remember them so we can recount them and we can understand their perspectives and so we can better understand God. That was their heart. And I think that should be our heart as well. There's a lot more complexities to that, but that's ultimately how the Bible came to be. It isn't just words on a page. They are stories that were passed down for thousands of years because why? Because God did amazing things in people's myths and they didn't want to lose that and they wanted to share that with people like you and me because 
seriously, if you went through some of the things that the Bible um, characters did, you'd probably want to share that with other people too. And so we get to read their account with their perspective with the help of the Spirit through the biblical story. Okay. Is the Bible, next question, is the Old Testament about God and the New Testament about Jesus? Great question. I totally get where this comes from because a lot of times how I even say it, you know, and how you hear it is in the New Old Testament, we hear a lot about God. We hear nothing about Jesus for an understandable reason. Because why? Because they're, you know, he's not in there in name per se. It's not the direct, clear answer that a lot of us are used to in our 21st century writing style. But Jesus is there. And then you get to the Old Te- New Testament and, um, or New Covenant, and it's like all about Jesus. And you're like, so God's not really a part of that anymore? Jesus is the focus. No, their equal focus is just Jesus had a more active participation in the New Testament. It's not just about God's, you know, how much God's mentioned or how much is Jesus mentioned. It's not about that. In the Old Testament, or, and this needs to be said for clarification for some people, the Old Covenant the Old Testament is a Greek word for covenant. So the first part of the Bible is the old covenant, plural actually, old covenants. There was more than one covenant. In other words, a covenant is an agreement or a contract, a relationship. And God said, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's what I'll do. And we've talked about these covenants before. The old covenant is this, God and his chosen people. That's a lot of the Old Testament is God and his chosen people. Then there's the new covenant, which spans, you know, old covenants like 4,000 years plus through 30 AD. New covenant is 30-ish AD through present. We are under the new covenant, the new agreement. And the new covenant is about God, still about God, all people, not just his chosen people, and everything that God did through Jesus. So the Old and the New Testament isn't just defined by God or Jesus, it's defined by other qualities too, like Old Testament's all about his chosen people and New Covenant's all about all people. Big difference. It's not just about emphasis on one thing or the other. There's a lot of things that change in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, okay? Um, Yes. Oh, the other thing that the person mentioned in this question was about the Trinity. Uh, if you grew up, if you didn't grow up in church and you, and you want to talk about the Trinity, just, you can listen, but listen anecdotally because the Trinity is a really hard concept. Um, if you grew up in the church, we have the Trinity. It's a, it's a defining part of Christianity. All Christians, like, believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The mystery of the Trinity is something that we'll never fully grasp, but essentially, um, we all agree that God, Jesus, and the Spirit are three distinct persons in one. So in Genesis chapter 1, in the first couple verses, you have God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, we got God. The Spirit hovered above the waters. Got the Spirit. And how did God create things? He did what? He spoke. He spoke. And what did John say in John chapter 1? The word of God became flesh. God's word became flesh. God's word was with him in the beginning and also in flesh, in the form of Jesus. 
You have the Trinity throughout. It's never uh, explicitly said, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but it is throughout the Bible that God expresses and interacts in different ways, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in so many different ways. Um, and so sometimes uh, that, that can be confusing of like, who's the focus? What are we focusing on? All of it. It's all God. It's three in one. Um, okay. Uh, why are books like Numbers and Leviticus in the Bible? <laughs> yeah, those are all the Bible people laughing because they're like, oh, that's a great question. I've wondered that too. Um, because you read Numbers and Leviticus and it's really boring. It's a lot of rules. It seems really old and outdated. And that's because it is. And what a lot of people do, especially atheist agnostic like myself, is we, and I looked at Numbers and Leviticus, was like, this is the reason I don't follow Jesus. Don't, I'm not a Christian, because you got books like these in there. And for whatever reason, we just don't realize we're reading thousands of year old text from an ancient culture and civilization that is far different than the American culture I was raised in. But if you take Numbers and Leviticus and you put it into that framework, it actually makes a lot of sense. It's hard to read those books in 2022 and say, well, this makes perfect sense because it doesn't. And like we said in week two, we need to honor, we need to honor the context and context, uh, context and content and the time frame in which some of these books took place. We need to honor that. And number two, think about it this way. Parents, if you're a parent, teacher, boss, leader, whatever, do you not have expectations for your employees, your kids, your family, your friends? You have expectations for them, right? You may even have policies or rules for them, right? Why do you set rules, expectations, and goals for them? Because you want them to what? Be successful. Yeah, you want them to do well. You don't want them to fall off the deep end, you know. You want them to um, reflect uh, on you and for you well, right? They're your representatives, right? If they drop the ball, then it reflects badly on you, right? Numbers in Leviticus is God's way of going into a culture, four, three, four thousand, five thousand year old culture from today's standard and saying, you need to stand apart from everybody else. This is what everybody else is doing. You need to abide by a different set of standards, a holier standard, a kinder standard, a more loving standard. You need to care for the foreigner. You need to protect the sick and vulnerable and the widows. You need to go out of your way to be clean especially in my presence. You need to repent and pay for your sins, the consequences of your behavior. Why? Because I need you to understand that when you mess up, it hurts people. The other cultures and communities that surround you, Israelites, don't understand that, but you need to understand that. You need to be a standout group of people. See if this sounds like any groups of people that you know today, <coughs> Christians. Should be like Christians, okay? This, is, this was essentially his point in Numbers and Leviticus and that. Don't murder, don't cheat, don't cover it, covet, don't sacrifice children. I think we all do that, okay. Welcomes foreigner, don't eat, um, don't eat like other cultures, stand out, um, not worship other gods, celebrate their practice or celebrate their practices, Okay, that's essentially the point at which he's getting to, okay? 
You're not gonna be successful if you do those other things. You'll live a better life if you do these other things. That was his point. It seems ancient and antiquated because, wait for it, it is. But just like you wouldn't like being judged by people 3,000 years from now, oh, they drove in cars. They had to put oil in their engines. They washed their hands. We don't even have germs. What, what crazy people. That's what people 3,000 years ago are gonna look at us and say, what were they doing? Would you appreciate that? No, you're like, hey, listen, we're doing the best we can given the resources and the tools and the environment that we're in. And that's what was happening for the most part in, those, in, in those, those books of the Bible, in the Torah and the first five books of the Bible. Okay, um, this is a good one. Uh, woo, running out of time. Okay, real quick, we're gonna do this one and then we're gonna be done. Uh, running out of time, sorry. Various questions about the Bible and hot button issues in America today. <laughs> I'm just doing a bucket statement here, okay? Uh, because some of you had some really great questions on hot button issues. And like, address this from stage, Taylor. We want to know all the answers to which, again, this is not an answer. This is just a response. Um, in this season of ministry, at least, we do not, as a church, tend to address hot culture topics from the stage. Um, we will absolutely do coffee and talk one-on-one -on -one about anything, and we'll open the Bible and we'll go through it. Why? Because too often those hot-button issues are oversimplified, way oversimplified in ways that you and I won't even imagine. The reason I know that is because I go into a lot of these one-on-one -on -one conversations with preconceived notions of how this is going to go, and I just tell you, 90% of the time, I am humbled by the questions I get asked because they are not as black and white as you hear in culture today. You hear in media today. You hear in politics today. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's never that black and white. In ways that if I had all of my life to dream up, I could never do. And then somebody comes, a genuine person who God's son died for, says, here is my ultimate problem with this hot button issue. Here's where I'm struggling with this hot button issue. I'm like, wow, I didn't expect that. I thought something totally different. But I only knew that because I sat down and had a conversation and sought understanding. But we don't do that. Why? Because it is easier to oversimplify other people and oversimplify issues because then we can make it black and white, then we can be angry, and we inevitably make our own problems up for us. A lot of our problems today are our own. They're not actually real. And I know that because you don't actually talk to the people you hate and judge. We don't do that. We should as Christians, but we don't do that as Americans. We just sit there and judge them. And we go on TV and we yell about them and get angry about them. Whew, I'm getting off topic. Okay, other reason we don't talk about it is they're emotionally heavy, okay? I do not talk, just, just my, my parenting advice, I don't try to teach, instruct, and uh, help my two or four-year-old through something when they are in a very heightened, we're going to call it heightened emotional state, tantrum. Why? Because they are, um, it is emotionally heavy. And so we have to wait till the temperature comes down until we can have a conversation about that, right? Otherwise, judgment, sadness, anger, and fear trump 
every bit of reason that I may put out there. And that's okay. We're human. Emotion is what we do. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying we got to let the temperature come down until we can have fruitful, meaningful conversation. And so a lot of times they're hot button for a reason. And so I got to let them cool down to talk about them. In the fall, we're going to do a debrief on the pandemic. Why? Because I think the temperature by the fall will have come down enough that we can have a meaningful conversation because we're not at each other's throats anymore. And so we can talk about it meaningfully. Um, here's another reason we don't do hot button issues in, in service. Um, it's this, people tend not to use my answers to grow closer to God and strengthen the church and find greater understanding. Instead, they tend to affirm pre-existing personal perspectives and then label me a heretic who loves the left or white wing agendas. Just saying. This is what you do. I don't think there's a lot of people in here who actually know my political beliefs on any subject, my actual beliefs. But I bet you have a pre-existing perspective on what they could be. And I bet you you're wrong. Why? Because we don't talk about it. You hear what I say up here and you assume and you build a perspective. And that's okay, we all do that. We need to do that to have healthy relationships. But understand, you might be wrong. And just like you, I don't appreciate being judged. Is that fair? I spent the last 10 years of life trying to go to church, serving the community, solving problems, solving sin through the power of Jesus because I think that's the ultimate solution. And I don't have time for those games. So we can talk about it in person and have meaningful, honest, truth and grace-filled conversations to build this part right here, to grow closer to God, to strengthen the church and find greater understanding. That, I'm totally game for that. And I think deep down you are too. And that doesn't happen very often in a one-way form of communication. I just tell you what I may think or based on my experience. Because guess what? 20 years from now, I bet my perspective may change a little bit, just like yours will. So let's grow together. Let's give truth together. Find grace together. The church doesn't span millennia. The church spans millennia and the globe. My boss... My boss is the earth's boss. My church, the organization I work for, operates in every country in the world. I get there as hot button issues in America, but I can't think American. Why? My boss is the creator of the universe. I hope he's your boss too, but that's totally your decision. I have to think and try to think in these terms, not in my 2020 to 22 frame and try to figure out all those issues. Because the issues today will probably not be the issues tomorrow. And we have to be wise and thoughtful. And so I got to think in a big picture. And sometimes I get it's really pressing and really like, oh, can you talk about this, Taylor? Yeah, absolutely, one-on-one. But in stage, no, why? Because I, get, I bet you, 100 years from now, people will be asking different questions. And I don't want you to walk away from church and therefore your kids walk away from church with you. And then 100 years from now, they don't even go to the church to find their answers. Why? Because I just spouted off some thoughts and you interpreted correctly or incorrectly and it just becomes a mess. We don't, uh, last, uh, gotta be done. Last thing, don't be shocked with sinful people. This is the other reason I don't talk about it from stages because for some reason, Christians especially are like shocked when people sin. 
It's just, it's just so hilarious to me. It's like, oh, we didn't know he'd do that. You didn't? Like, it, it literally is like page one, two, and three in this thing. Like, this is your thing, right? One, two, and three. You didn't think that was going to happen? You didn't think if you gave them that thing that they would go and do that thing? Really? I wasn't shocked. And then the Christians do this awesome thing where then they point at the rest of the world and say, you're the problem. Like, what? Of course they're the problem. We're the problem. But we knew that, didn't we? No, we apparently don't know that. Don't be shocked. And if you're not shocked, I think you're going to be much more positioned in your heart and your mind to have a conversation and care. Because you're not sitting there like, <gasps> you're like, yeah, I kind of saw that coming. Just like you tell your kid, don't climb the tree. What are they going to do? Climb the tree. And when they climb the tree, you can go out there and not be like, <gasps> I can't believe they climbed the tree. I love those parents who like, you know, you think your kid can do no wrong. And it's like, but then they did wrong. <gasps> Yeah, but if you go out there and you're like, I kind of knew that was going to happen. Come on over here, buddy. Let's talk about this. Totally changes the paradigm, doesn't it? Totally changes the paradigm. Okay, and oh, last thing. We do answer hot button issues most Sundays, actually. You just have to take what I say and contextualize it. What does love require for, of me? Take that and apply that. What does love require of me? Not what I want, but what does God's love of humanity require of me? What does Jesus' sacrifice for humanity require of me? This will help you to answer that question, but you have to apply it and not wait for me to do it for you. A couple of resources here. Skip ahead. So sorry, we've got to skip. Loopholes message, perfect Christian. It's uh, one of the messages we did. Google it. Uh, it's on our website. Uh, watch this series. Watch specifically episode two, which is called Loopholes. Uh, a book called How Not to Read the Bible. How Not to Read the Bible will help you not to read the Bible the wrong way. Okay. And then uh, picking yourself up a story Bible. It's a great way to start the Bible, but not be totally overwhelmed or use the Bible Project. Again, love the Bible Project. We support the Bible Project because they just do some phenomenal work helping the Bible become understandable to all of you. I hope this was helpful. We are so behind. I just apologize in advance to all the kids people because they're like, oh, when's Taylor going to be done? Okay, let's pray, uh, and then we're going to have a little fun. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for caring enough to give us a story, a story that you have worked through the lives of people, that, that the story we get to read isn't just you and isn't just humanity. It's exactly how you began the earth with us and you together. And it's messy and it's difficult and it's not black and white. Oh, Lord, we'd love it to just be like super simple and answer all the questions. But God, I believe you have given us enough. You have given us enough to follow you, to trust you, to put our faith in you and keep our eyes on you and live a life that grows daily towards you if we so choose. We can grow towards the world. We can desire the world's things. We can act like everybody else acts. We absolutely have that freedom. You have given us that freedom and thank you for that freedom. But we also have the freedom to choose you and to grow with you. And so thank you for giving us the roadmap for how people have failed at doing that in the past so we can do that better in our future. 
So Lord, help us to see the Bible like that, to trust the Bible like that, and to ultimately grow closer to you, our creator, our father in heaven, our sacrificial son, and the spirit who encourages, emboldens, and empowers us to be more and greater than we could be alone. Help us to keep our eyes and our hearts and our minds on that truth. Most of all, let that be the guiding principle as we read the Bible and grow more than anything else, more than any political commentary, more than any issue that's happening in the world, more than any doubts we have. Help us to remember we are followers of your son, Jesus. We are followers of you, Lord. Most of all, thank you for the roadmap, your story that helps us to do that better every day. In your name I pray, amen.